Scripture reading for this morning is Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Latin phrase, post tenebris lux, after darkness light, became the motto of the Protestant Reformation. It referred to the breaking forth of gospel light that had been veiled for so long uh, throughout the darkness of the Middle Ages, but it also captures something intensely personal, and that is this, that, that the darkness that often pre- pre- is a prelude, the darkness is often a prelude to God's grace. I don't know what the biblical Hebrew translation of after darkness light would be, but if it had been around, it would have been on the lips of the people of Judah when they read or heard this portion of Joel for themselves. The darkness of the locust plague and all that the plague foreshadowed for Judah of the coming day of the Lord would pass, and after darkness, light grace, restoration in a way beyond their and our imagining. The question we might ask of them and the question that we need to ask ourselves is this, will this promise of light after darkness be believed? This is especially true when the darkness is due in no small measure to our own sin. When we face suffering and profound loss, The locust years, to use the phrase that we find here in Joel, will we hear and trust God's promise to restore? This promise of restoration for all who look to him in repentance and faith. Or will we, as Joel's first readers may have been tempted to do, look across the barren landscape of our lives and sink ever deeper into regret and despair over the lost years. 
I had to answer that question for myself. I've had to ask and answer that question more than once in my life. But in particular, there was a very acute, very real season in my life in which I had to ask, will I believe this profound promise, especially there in Joel 2.25, that God is able to restore, that he's able to do something that is, in fact, impossible to bring some form of recompense, some restoration for that which had been lost. So as we look at this entire passage that I read this morning, it's Joel 2.25 that's especially on my heart for you. Pray that by God's grace, it will be taken to heart. I'm thankful that we have the Holy Spirit that we uh, celebrate today on Pentecost dwelling in each one of us because at the end of the day, it doesn't depend on the effectiveness of my words, but on his power that dwells within you. May this great and glorious trait, truth, be driven home into our hearts. Two things I want us to take a look at this morning. First, that the Lord responds to the cries of his people. The Lord responds to the cries of his people. And the second thing I want us to see this morning is how we must respond to his promise to restore. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we are reminded that only you can bring restoration. And so we pray that you would feed us, that you would guide us, that you would teach us. We're thankful for your word, that your word is living and active and powerful. And we thank you that your spirit is given to apply your word deep into our hearts and bring the change that we so desperately need. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, the Lord responds to the cries of his people. The people of Judah have been hearing about this locust plague. That's the message of Joel up to this point, that there is a day that is coming, a, a locust plague that will come, which was not uncommon in their day of, in, and age, and would have struck great fear in their hearts, because they had either witnessed themselves or heard the stories from the past of locust plagues that, have, that had gone through the ancient you know, Near East, that, the, Middle, the part of the Middle East, and, and seen complete devastation, not only in the moment, in that time when the plague, the locusts were coming through, but in the resulting years of utter devastation that would follow. And so they're hearing this message from Joel that this day is coming. It's a day that's coming in order to draw God's people back to himself because they have, um, they, they have wandered from him. They have forgotten that he's with them, that he is their God, and they are his people. And it also foreshadows that great and dreadful day of the Lord that is coming. It is itself uh, uh, an expression of it, the beginning of God's judgment on the household of God, and yet it was also something that pointed to a day that is to come. However, Joel tells us, God through Joel tells us that the people will respond. I'm sorry, that they will respond in prayer, and God will respond to them. He will answer. Verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us, the Lord answered and said to his people, I mean, just let that, we, we take that so for granted, don't we? That when, when sinful people like ourselves call out to God, the God whom we have sinned against, he answers every time. He hears and he responds. He'll hear these people when they cry out to him and he will respond Joel said back in, in Joel chapter 1, verse 12, God says through Joel, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That is true repentance. It's a rending of the heart and not the garment. It's not putting on a show of being sorry for your sin. It's actually coming before the Lord in the truth of who you are, resting in the confidence of who he is. A God who will forever hear, who will forever respond to the cries of his people. And the Lord responds. He responds in covenant love. Take a look with me at verse 18 real quick. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. That word jealous describes the devotion of heart that God felt. The word pity describes how he acted, how he responded to that that jealousy, that, that devotion that existed within his heart. I love the fact that the passage tells us that he was jealous for his land as well as for his people. Makes me think of Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, I'm sorry, verse 31, God looked over all that he had made, including man, and said, it is very good. But prior to that, prior to the creation of man, he looked over all that he had made, and he said, it is good. This earth is God's creation. It's good. And God is jealous for his land. He loves that which he created. He promises to bring restoration, not just to his people, but to his earth, to his land. Love. Love that, that was the, 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 behind the devotion of his heart that led him to act for his land and for his people. Love for us is such a, a subjective feeling it can come and go. For, for God, it is an objective, unchanging, steadfast, unfailing reality for those to whom he has bound himself in covenant. The word covenant is not anywhere in this passage, but the language of covenant is all over this passage. In verse 27, take a look there with me. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. That phrase, I am the Lord your God, reveals his covenant bond with his people. It's found throughout the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Isaiah 43, 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Ezekiel 20, this is the last one. Ezekiel 20, verse 5, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. This is a reflection of God's binding of himself to a sinful people in covenant, in loyalty, in pledge. This is who God is. He said, I am in the midst of Israel, back in chapter 2, verse 27. That, that echoes the exodus, the, the glory cloud, the, the presence of God among his people as he led them through the wilderness. It, it, it echoes what was the, later the tabernacle and then the temple where God's spirit dwelled in the midst of his people. And they are his people. He, throughout Joel, not, not just the passage we read, but throughout Joel as a book, and in fact, throughout the Bible, you hear God saying, you are my people. 
you, especially you from among all the nations, you, even though there was nothing special about you, I chose you not because your choice, (laughs) but just because I set my love upon you. My people, God says. God's love is steadfast. His mercy, unfailing. Because that is who he is for those to whom he has bound himself in the covenant of grace. He will always and forever be the Lord gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who relents over disaster. Now you may be thinking, okay, this is the Old Testament. He's talking to the people of Israel. How is that me? But remember, remember what Paul said in Romans. If your hope is in Jesus Christ, you have been woven in to that olive branch. Remember what Paul said in Romans and in Galatians as well. It's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. These promises are for us. God has bound himself to you if you are a child of God. And if you're not a child of God, today's the day to put your trust in Jesus Christ so you can find yourself woven into this same household, this same family, this same beloved church that is the church of Jesus Christ, entirely by grace, not because of anything in us. God did not look on any one of us and say, I see potential. He looked on every one of us and said, they need my love. And he sent his son that we might know it. And therefore, there will never be a day when a child of his cannot cry out and know that he or she will be heard. So how does God respond to the cries of his people? Well, the Lord responds with a promise to restore. Now, was, uh, Chris Holders and I, Chris over at New City, we, we you know, are going through Joel together. We went through the Gospel of Mark together a couple years ago. We preached Galatians together, Galatians over there in New City here at Grace. And now we're doing Joel together. And we get together every week and kind of bring our our notes together, our notes from our study time, and kind of compare notes and think about where we're going to head with this passage. And, And this passage especially, we were like, we need a whole Sunday school class before church just to unpack some of the things so that we can get to the preaching. But we don't have a whole Sunday school class. So I wish I could take time to unpack verse 20, where God promises to restore their security. Let me read it for us. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. This is a way of talking about the locust plague that is coming, the northerner being personified, again, as an army. God said, my army that I sent among you. You can go back as far as Augustine in the third century and and read about the fact that after these locust plagues passed through, there would be, in some places, piled three and four feet high, the dead locusts that created a stench that passed throughout the land. So it's pointing to that locust plague, but it's pointing beyond the locust plague to others whom God would raise up to bring Judgment on his people that they might repent and return to him. And it's ultimately pointing to that great and dreadful day of the Lord that Joel and all the prophets are pointing toward when God raises up or permits on a leash Satan to attack that the church of God might be purified, that those who have faith in Christ would walk ever closer to him, that those who are bringing their lips and not their hearts to God will, in fact, be exposed and fall away. 
that those who are experiencing the, the great and dreadful things that happen would perhaps repent and turn to the Lord. And then Satan would, or God would pull in that leash and Satan would be cast into the abyss. And the joy that we'll sing of at the close of this service would be forever known, not just to God's people, but to the entire earth. I needed a whole Sunday school class to do that. I just, psh. But that's verse 20. God promises to restore their security. You could look at verse 17 and see how God promises to restore their reputation. That would have been from last week. But the priests are crying out and saying, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? That promise of restoration of their reputation comes out in our passage for this morning, at the end of verse 19, God promises, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Again, in verse 27, at the end of that, my people shall never again be put to shame. That shame that's being referred to here is not an internal shame. It's the, it's the shame that's, that's, that's connected to the reproach that God's people bore in the earlier passage that, we'll read, that we read. He promises to restore their security. He promises to restore their reputation. He promises to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. How can that be? All manner of things can be restored, but we can't go back in time. Days and years, decades perhaps, perhaps cannot be restored, can they? Surely the people of Joel would have heard that promise and say, oh, I want to go back. And perhaps so many of you think, I want to go back. I want to go back to that point right before it seems like everything went wrong. Or back, back to those years when I, when I went off track and now I see that was the moment when if I had just looked to the Lord, everything would be okay right now. How is this promise fulfilled? How is it? that God restored the years for the people of Judah. Well, for them, he restored the years by restoring the land. Right? All, the, all the things that we read concerning the restoration of the land in this passage, fear not, be glad and rejoice. Fear not, you beasts of the field. Jumping back up in, um, or, no, sorry, jumping down. Uh, the, the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine tree give their full yield. He's given the early rain for your vindication. It's a picture of this complete restoration of, of an abundance of harvest. All that had been lost for them during the locust years, all the devastation, the loss of the harvest would be restored with abundance in these years that were to come. There would be a yield that far exceeded all of the, that had been lost. But what about us? What does that look like for those of us who long to see this promise fulfilled in our lives? Let's move secondly then to how we must respond to his promise to restore. And I, I want to ask three questions here. The first is, what are your locust years? What, what are your lost years? There's a really helpful article at the Gospel Coalition website. It's written by Colin Smith. The title of it is, God Can Restore Your Lost Years. And he spends the first part of the article just kind of naming some of them. And it's helpful for us, I think, to just kind of be able to name the lost years for what they are. Some that he gave examples, lost years are fruitless years. They're years in which you've given yourself tirelessly to some project or, or perhaps for your entire career, and there's been no fruit to show for it. 
right? You're a research scientist. You've given your entire academic career to research that's never borne fruit. Or you've been in a season where some project, some, something that you've been working on, just <laughs> hours and hours and hours, so much overtime and nothing. Fruitless years. Everything fell apart. There's no fruit from your labor. Painful years. Loss of a loved one, perhaps. Now you have a a debilitating illness. How do you deal with the disappointment that comes with not being able to do the things that you were once able to do? How do you deal with the loss of that loved one and the the great void that, that that leaves in your life? Lost years, perhaps. Locust years are selfish years. They're years spent living for your own glory. Years in which you've been driven by your own ambition and you've missed the people that are around you. You've missed the relationships. The children have grown. You can't go back. Lost years are selfish years. Lost years are rebellious years. Years spent living, running from what you know is true. And there's been so much pain so much loss, so much hurt, and you can't go back. Lost years are Christless years. Years without Christ. Sometimes we're tempted to think, you know, man, I wish I just had that. I wish I had that younger brother testimony from Luke 15. I wish I could give glory to God by talking about my terrible wandering and then how God rescued me from that because those testimonies are so powerful. Listen, if you stop and think about it for a moment, you will realize the best testimony, the one that we all long for, is the one that says, I've never known a day without Jesus as my Savior. I've always trusted in him. I've always, by grace, walked with him. I've never known what it means to not be with him. Anyone who's gone through years, decades, maybe almost an entire lifetime, not following Jesus would tell you, oh, how I wish I had started following him so long before. These are all years that can't be regained. So how does God bring restoration? How does he restore? That's the second question. How does God restore? God restores by strengthening your faith in him. Right? God uses all manner of trials, including the trials that we bring upon ourselves, is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.7, in order to test our faith that what is produced is something that is more pure, ultimately more glorifying to Jesus. So what can happen now on the other side of the locust years? I can look back and say, God is sovereign. I can trust that what was happening was in some way needful for me. It's resulting in something that is for my good and for his glory. And so I can, I can walk forward on the other side of the locust years, knowing that in some way this is indeed for God's glory and for my good. I'm walking by faith that's been refined Indeed, through the locust years and not just on the other side of them. So God brings restoration by, by strengthening your faith. God brings restoration by deepening your communion with him. What did we say at the very beginning? It's often on the other side of darkness that the light of God's grace shines most brightly. It's often on the other side of darkness, having lived... <laughs> Not separate from God because God's always with us, but living as though he's not there. 
that we then come to that point of realizing he's there. He's always been there. And there's a deeper communion with him that can be known. That's part of the restoration that God brings for the locust years. God, God can multiply your fruitfulness. I've seen this with those who have rebelled and been wandering. I've seen this with those who have lived selfish lives. I've seen those, this with those who have who've experienced that disappointment of, of loss. And I've seen them be able to say, this is my story. Let me tell you my story of God's restoring grace in my life. And been used by God either to bring someone else through the end of their locust years or prevent them from heading off into them. God can multiply his mercy in you by multiplying your fruitfulness in his world. We can't go back. We can't go back. So how should we respond? The first thing I think we need to do, which doesn't make any sense perhaps, unless you're on the other side of the locust years, it's reject regret. Reject regret. Reject regret and let your grief guide you to repentance. See, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Think about Paul. This is the same Paul who was persecuting the church. He oversaw the execution of Christians. He left Jerusalem and went to Antioch in order to pursue them and hunt them down. This is the same Paul who said in Philippians chapter 3, forgetting that which is behind. How? Paul's saying everything, you know, he's, he's saying I, I forget all my great righteousness in Judaism. He's also saying I forget the things that I did in offense to God against the church. I'm not going to be bound up by regret. I'm going to move forward in grace. Both regret and repentance start in the soil of pain. In that soil, you will either sow tears that lead to repentance or tears that deepen your regret. Reject regret. Instead, repent. Repent. Whether those locust years are years that are of your own doing or years that have been thrust upon you but in which you lived as though God weren't there, repent. Return to him. Rest in his grace. Perhaps you say to yourself, Mark, I, I can't forgive myself for the things I've done. Good news, you don't have to. That idea of I just can't forgive myself is nowhere to be found in Scripture. God does the forgiving. The question is, will we walk in the forgiveness that he has granted to us? Or will we continue to live as though God hasn't spoken a word over us, you are forgiven? Reject regret and let your grief guide you to repentance. Second, rest in his presence. That's the whole point of Joel in a, in a big way. Joel, again, God is saying through Joel in chapter 2, verse 27, you shall know that I am in your midst, that I am in the midst of Israel. How, how did that happen? You know, after the, just before the exile, the spirit of God departed from the temple. 
And after the exile, even though the temple would be rebuilt, it would never be restored to its former glory. And the Spirit of God would never come to rest upon the temple again. So how was it that the people could know that he was in their midst? Well, fast forward to the time of Jesus. John tells us that Jesus tabernacled among us. Same idea. Jesus was the temple of God. He was the one, John tells us, in whom all the fullness of God dwelled among man. But what about now? Today's Pentecost. The Spirit of God has been poured out. So whenever a person becomes a Christian, the Spirit of God takes up residency in his or her heart. To what does the Spirit of God testify? The nearness of God. That he is your Father. That you are his beloved child. That he is with you, he will never leave you or forsake you, and so you can rest. No matter the storm and the destruction left in its wake, you can rest because God is with you. And he will never leave you. Reject regret, turn to the Lord instead in repentance. Rest in his presence because with you and never, will never depart from you. And then third, rejoice and watch for the promised restoration. Commentators point out that all the things that are promised concerning the restoration of the earth in Joel, or in places like Isaiah chapter 35, or in places like Psalm 98, which we uh, read as the call to worship this morning, never quite came true for the people of Israel in their land. And so we read Revelation chapter 21 that says that all things will be made new. There'll be new heavens and a new earth. And we're reminded, aren't we, that all these prophecies point ultimately to their fulfillment in Christ at his return. There will be a restoration coming greater than anything that we can imagine now. God has broken in in Jesus Christ. His spirit has been poured out. We can experience a foretaste of the restoration that is to come. But we and all creation can rejoice in light of the day that is coming. We're going to close singing Joy to the World. I just wanted to tell you that so that when they get back up here and Aaron, our worship leader, says, let's all, he's not going to say, oh, yeah. when that comes up on the screen, you don't look at Aaron and go, man, Aaron, we love you, but what's going on, bro? Listen, Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World based on Psalm 98. Psalm 98 is not a Christmas psalm. It isn't. It's, it's about the advent of Christ, but the second advent, not the first one. It's about his return when the king comes back and all things are made new more than it is about his first coming. Now, it's good that we sing it at Christmas, but it's one of those that could be sung year-round. And it absolutely links up with the rejoicing that Joel calls for here. We have an opportunity to rejoice. The Lord responds to the cries of his people. When we cry out in repentance, whether our sin be the things we have done or the sin we failed to do, including walking through pain and suffering, living as if he isn't with us, he's not at work in us. When we cry out to him in repentance and faith, he hears. And he promises not just consolation, but restoration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to hold fast to this truth, that there is a day coming greater than any day we have ever known. And until that day, you have broken in in your Son, you have poured out your Spirit so that all who look to you in faith can have a foretaste of that great and glorious day, a little taste of the restoration that is to come. Oh God, would you help us to seek it even as we seek you and walk faithfully until that day, and we ask it all in Jesus' name.
Amen.